Beloved congregation of the Lord, turn in the Heidelberg Catechism once more as we consider the words of Lord's Day 30. Lord's Day 30 on page 62 in the back of your Psalter. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have a full pardon of all sin by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself has once accomplished on the cross, and that we, by the Holy Ghost, are engrafted into Christ, who, according to his human nature, is now not on earth, but in heaven at the right hand of God his Father, and will there be worshipped by us, but the Mass teaches that the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests. And further, that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine, and therefore is to be worshipped in them. So that the Mass at bottom is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ in an accursed idolatry. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ and that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy. But hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves. Are they also to be admitted to this, this supper who by confession in life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? No, for by this the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, it is the duty of the Christian church according to the appointment of Christ and his apostles to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven Till they show amendment of life. Now here in our Heidelberg Catechism, we have been considering the doctrine of the sacraments. We considered at some length the purpose of baptism, and now we are in the section concerning the Lord's Supper. Dwelling in some detail on this 30th of Lord's Days, in order that we may address some of the contemporary challenges facing this holy ordinance and sacrament of the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember, of course, that both of these visible signs and seals of Christ's salvation, they were instituted not to give faith to the Lord's people, but to strengthen and nourish the faith of the Lord's people. And yet, baptism and the Lord's Supper, they differ in some essential respects. As I was comparing our catechism with the Westminster Larger Catechism, it explained this point uh, in a very helpful way, which I would ask you to consider. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 106, 76, we read this, wherein do the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper agree? The sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper agree 
and that the author of both is God. The spiritual part of both is Christ and his benefits. Both are seals of the same covenant, are to be dispensed by ministers of the gospel and by none other, and to be continued in the church of Christ until his second coming. All areas in which the two are very similar. And yet, question 177 says this, wherein do the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper differ? Answer the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper differ in that baptism is to be administered but once with water to be a sign and seal of our regeneration and engrafting into Christ and that even and that even to infants whereas the Lord's Supper is to be administered often in the elements of bread and wine to represent and exhibit Christ as spiritual nourishment to the soul and to confirm our continuance and growth in him and that only to such as are of years and ability to examine themselves. So you hear what it is saying here, that whereas the um, baptism seems to especially be a sign and seal of our first union to Christ in our regeneration and new birth, the Lord's Supper is more of the ongoing communion of the believer with Christ daily going out to Christ for fresh nourishment and growth in grace as he is signified and sealed in the supper. And so the, it makes a particular point of saying that it's only those who are of years and ability to examine themselves who should partake. It is not even just the presence of faith, the presence of faith which qualifies one to receive the Lord's Supper, no, but the activity and maturity of that faith such that they can examine themselves. I was contacted by uh, a minister this week who'd heard about some of my opposition to the practice of pedo communion, a practice which his own church has adopted and was saying, no, 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 you need to understand you should have little children at the Lord's Supper, you see, because even according to their uh, young age, those with faith, they can, they can examine themselves in, in, a, in a fashion. And we say in, in this that such who profess such things have departed from both the beliefs and practice of the Reformed Church as well as the Word of God. No, we look at 1 Corinthians 11, which we have just seen, and it's very clear that these are active uh, practices that are enjoined of mature believers. They are those, we see in verse 24, who may partake in remembrance of Christ. They are those who can take the bread and eat it. They are those who can take the cup, verse 25, and drink. And likewise, this particular duty of self-examination, which we see set forth in verse 28, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup, it likewise is a particular duty of the mature believer in Christ who has made confession of faith 
and is to be welcomed unto the supper upon the performance of this duty and how important it is, brothers and sisters, that we understand this duty of self-examination. It is one which the neglect of brings terrible judgments and the wrath of God is kindled against the whole church. But where rightly performed, it brings glory unto God, peace and joy to our souls and the nourishment and growth of our faith. And so it's with this that we would in particular focus on examination and the Lord's Supper. Examination and the Lord's Supper. Now, we will consider this under three headings, a little bit different from what's in the bulletin. First, we will see the duty, the duty of the self-examination. Second, the criteria, or what you are examining for, the criteria of your examination. And third, the finding, what it is that you are to conclude and find from this solemn duty. The duty, the criteria, and the finding. Well, our catechism in Lord's Day 30 does not so much expressly talk about self-examination, but like uh, the Westminster Confession, it is certainly what the Lord, what the Reformed Fathers had in view. You notice that there's a distinguishing uh, divide made in question 20, sorry, question 81. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins and yet trust that they are forgiven them for the sake of Christ and that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy. But hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts, eat and drink judgment to themselves. Well, the Bible would not have taught this so explicitly, particularly in this passage of Scripture, were it the case that we could not know whether we were partaking worthily or unworthily, whether we were doing what the Lord desires, desires us or whether we were not. And so verse 28 speaks of this in particular. Let a man examine himself. Let a man examine himself. And the word translated examine in the Greek has the idea of to perform a test in order to determine if something is acceptable or to be approved. There's a test, an examination, if you will, and you're trying to determine is this what I am looking for? Is this acceptable? Or is it unacceptable? Is it approved or is it not approved? And we uh, see this used in different senses in the Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 3 is one such example, and that's a chapter that perhaps some of you in our church are reading recently because maybe you've read in our bulletin that the consistory is seeking recommendations on office bearers to help with the work of the Lord to their, our current office bearers. Well, 1 Timothy 3 is an important chapter because it lays out the qualifications of bishops or elders and deacons. And if you would look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 11, after it goes through some of these qualifications, it speaks of how it is the church should uh, receive such 
men who are qualified. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, same word, be proved or examined. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Now here it especially follows upon the church of Christ, not to just appoint anyone to an office of minister, elder, or deacon, but to examine them, to determine, is this a man who in his life and conduct shows the giftings of one who is so called to that office? Or indeed, does he show forth the marks of one who is not qualified? And so 1 Timothy 3 lays out the way in which you are to do that. And of course, it would be a terrible thing, wouldn't it, if the consistory were to put men on a ballot which were not qualified, which had not been examined, which had not been prayed over and said, is this a man whom we are confident uh, is qualified? It shows the marks of a man who can serve on the consistory. Likewise, it would be terrible, wouldn't it, if any other criteria than that were on the hearts of the Lord's people as they prayed over such a selection and, and selected men to perform that office. It would be terrible if such things were just done in routine or, or thoughtlessly. And so it is also a terrible thing when in the Lord's Supper, this examination does not take place. Only the difference, you see, is that this is not an examination based upon outward uh, conduct, which the church is equipped to judge, but not only those things, but also the inner things of the heart and soul, those things which you yourself must examine concerning yourself. It is not a duty of myself or the elder to examine you in this way. Indeed, there is such an examination when a person is received as a confessing member to our church or where a visitor is to be welcome to the Lord's Supper, we interview them and ask, how is it with you and the Lord? How has the Lord led you? Are you a member of a biblical church? And so forth. Such things are proper, but these are, are things that we can only go so far with. And there's also what you are required to do, Christian. You are required to obey the words of this verse. Let a man, let any man or woman examine him or her self. It's the same word used in 2 Corinthians, so the same author, the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians now, verse 13. And he says in verse 5, examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. So first, the exhortation, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. A good exhortation. And then the question, don't you know yourselves? Don't you know that Jesus is in you? How could that not be something you know, except ye be reprobates? Now the word reprobates in the Greek has the idea of a counterfeit, or a phony, or a fake. Indeed, there are those who would profess to be true children of God, numbered among the Lord's elect, and yet where uh, 
where the Lord looks upon the heart, it proves to be not so, that indeed there is a counterfeit, a hypocrite, a reprobate, where one ought never to have made such a confession, for they are not a partaker of the grace of the Lord. In our text in 1 Corinthians 11, it's interesting you read later on down in verse 31, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And we read that whole thing in context. We touched upon it in an earlier sermon. But the sense of it is simply this, that rather than let God judge you and deal with you according to the standard of his justice, would it not be better if you, according to your own conscience, would render a judgment upon yourself? An interesting Argument In that context, of course, many were abusing the Lord's Supper, using it in a disorderly and an unloving way. And so many became sick and some even died. And so the, the apostle said, well, this could have been avoided. If you had in your own conscience made this determination that these are wrong, if you yourself had rendered a proper uh, judgment on God's behalf on the basis of the word and the law of God understood that you had sinned. And so it is. We can see self-examination is sort of like that. You, like a good judge, should summon all relevant evidence. And you, being your own self, the Lord of your own soul in a manner of speaking, one who is responsible under God for every thought, word, and action, can you... Not indeed summon yourself before your trial and ask for a proper accounting. How is it with me today? How do I stand before the Lord? How is it with my dealings with God? I understand, of course, that this is not to be done in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own understanding. No, like where we would enter into this this holy calling, it can never be done apart from the Lord's own involvement, his own blessing. Indeed, the Bible would speak of God examining us where we enter into this work. For example, Psalm 26, verses 2 and 3, Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins in my heart. For thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. If the Lord should not examine us, if we should not examine ourselves on the Lord's behalf, then how is it that we would know if we are the genuine child, children of God, or if we are phonies, or if we are fakes? What a blessed thing it is that the Lord, in this regular pattern and rhythm of our Christian lives, would call us to exercise this duty. Maybe one says it's a, it's a fearful thing, it's a trying thing, it's a stressful thing to examine myself. Oh, my friend, not so stressful as going to hell with a false profession of faith. It can be a hard thing to examine yourself in dependence on the Lord. It's not so hard as not examining yourself. The unexamined heart is a very dangerous place to be. Think of that parable of the soils that the Lord Jesus gives. The sower goes out to sow. 
The precious word of the gospel is sown forth on the hearers of the word. And some falls on the rocky soil, some the thorny soil, some some the hard soil, and so forth. And each one has a different response, and each one different from the good soil, which yields much fruit. All these parts of the word of God that are there not just for our information. Oh, it's interesting. Different responses to the word of God. No, they are there in order that in this week of our preparation, we would look at these marks of grace. We would examine our own hearts and lives and say, how is it with me? We would do so in the strength of the Lord, pleading for his help. This is the duty of self-examination. And I hope there's not one who would say this is a light thing. I hope we would all, having heard this, say this is a week that I'm not going to let slip by. Unexamined, negligent of my duty, no. In preparation of the Lord's Supper, in obedience to the will and command of Christ, I will examine myself by God's grace. We've seen the duty, I wish to speak of the discovery Discovery. No, excuse me, I'm thinking the criterion. The criteria. The criteria is the second point, and what I simply mean by this is how, by what standard, in what way are you to examine yourself? What, after all, are you looking for? There can be all sorts of endeavors to examine yourself. But if you're not proceeding on a biblical basis, if you're looking for something that is foreign to the word of God, then one or two things may happen. One, you may not find it, and so be utterly discouraged and give up the prospect of coming to the Lord's Supper. Or you may find it. You may find what you're looking for, never having determined to look only for what God requires of a worthy receiver of the Lord's Supper. It's not enough, of course, simply to be a member of the church, not enough merely to say, well, I don't want to look foolish by not coming to the Lord's Supper. Those aren't sufficient to worldly partake. What is the teaching of this chapter? If you would sum it all up and say, what is it the criteria of rightly examining ourselves? I think that there are a really good summary would be found in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I like how the Shorter Catechism compresses it to the very essence uh, in question 97. What is required to the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? It is required of them that would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body of their faith to feed upon him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience, less coming unworthily, they eat and drink judgment to themselves. I commend that to you, worthy of memorization, worthy of reflection. But let's break it down a little bit because it really encapsulates what this chapter is exactly saying in the essence of it. First, that last uh, Point that is raised, less coming unworthily, they eat and drink judgment to themselves. This draws, of course, from verse 29. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. 
and our Reformed Fathers who wrote the Westminster Confession and Catechisms, they rightly translate that Greek word judgment, which is a little bit better than the authorized version here, damnation. For even if you read this chapter carefully, it's rather clear that even those who died, Paul does not say they went to hell for abusing the Lord's Supper. It says that he's, they sleep. They sleep, giving them a judgment of charity, that they were believers, though they had sinned against the Lord. But in any case, it is a very serious word. The judgment, the judgment that is brought upon the Christian who comes unworthily, the confessing Christian, is one who eats and drinks judgment to himself. And this isn't a terrible thing to imagine. You come to the Lord's Supper for nourishment, ostensibly for increasing your faith, and all the time eating and drinking judgment. The very means used for nourishment used to bring Judgment. Dr. John Gill says this, just as Adam and Eve might be said to eat condemnation to themselves and posterity because their eating of the forbidden fruit was the cause of it. We would read that story of Adam and Eve and say, no, don't eat that forbidden fruit. The Lord has spoken. Don't listen to the serpent. It says, has God really said? You must not eat of the tree. And yet, so it is that people today will not obey the clear commandment of the Lord, that they not eat or drink the Lord's Supper, except they rightly examine themselves. This is most important, most pressing. It is something, of course, that is not only negative, because if you think about it, if there is the warning of judgment to yourself, the Lord's displeasure upon you, and the church for unworthily partaking. And the flip side of that is that though there is a blessing held forth for those who do worthily partake. In Westminster Larger Confession, which we'd already read at the beginning, what is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? To represent and exhibit Christ as spiritual nourishment to the soul and to confirm our continuance and growth in him. This is what is held forth to us. What an awesome privilege to have the Lord exhibited to us, to have him signified and sealed unto our souls in faith. Indeed, not only the threatening of judgment, but the promise of blessing requires us, requires us to rightly use this ordinance. It may not be the unforgivable sin if, this ordinance is abused. Indeed, there be many who have abused this ordinance, have repented and received mercy from the Lord as any other, but it is never to be trifled with. A most serious thing. And what loss of privilege and blessing for those who do not rightly use the ordinance. So that is spoken above in the catechism. Less coming unworthily, they eat and drink judgment to themselves. But look at those three elements in their essential points. Knowledge, faith, repentance. Knowledge, faith, repentance. Of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body. This is what you're examining yourself for, Christian. Is there knowledge to discern the Lord's body? And this, of course, is held forth again in verse 29. Not discerning the Lord's body is that which is 
warned against. And so the reverse is implied. If you do discern the Lord's body, then this is what is required of you. This is a sign that you are worthily partaking of it. The sermon here is described as one who distinguishes, who distinguishes. It's the same word used later on in the passage for judgment, judgment of ourselves. But uh, here it's used to discern, uh, as it's fairly well translated in the King James. Dr. Gill says this, they distinguish not the Lord's Supper from, so he's speaking here about those who are not exercising this discipline of not discerning the Lord's body. And this is what he says about them. They distinguish not the Lord's Supper from an ordinary and common meal, but confound them together, as did many of the Corinthians, who also did not distinguish the body of Christ in it. So it's quite clear from the context, right? Not observing it in an orderly and in a loving manner, but going off and having their own separate meals within the gathered congregation, dividing the body of Christ and bringing disrepute to the honor of Christ. That was what they were doing. And Paul says, well, yes, you're not discerning the Lord's body, that it's a special meal. It is a covenant meal. It is the Lord's meal where he is pictured and signified in his broken body and death. So it is, Dr. Gill goes on, they discern not the dignity, excellence, and usefulness of Christ's body as broken and offered for us, in which he bore our sins on the tree and made satisfaction for them, a commemoration of which is made in this ordinance. Oh, this must surely be on the forefront of our self-examination. Do we even have an understanding of what is taking place? The very Son of God died for sinners. The very Son of God instituted this for his remembrance. The very Son of God broken in his body, shed forth in his blood for you, sinner. Is this on your mind? If this is foreign from all your thinking, then you are not fit to receive the supper. Listen to what John Calvin says in one of his sermons. If we think we are made righteous when we come to the Lord's Supper, when we take a piece of bread and a drop of wine, what becomes of our Lord Jesus Christ's passion and death, to which the sacrament refers us? For it is said, this is my body, which is given for you. This is my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. We must therefore, in keeping with our low estate and weakness, be led to the true substance of the sacrament and place our complete confidence in them and find rest there. Here it is. Not only that that we distinguish in our minds this is what is happening, but that it stir us up, stir us up to that faith to feed upon him. This is what Calvin is saying, that where we would consider, where we would discern the Lord's body present, held forth as our Savior and sacrifice, we must then ask this, is there a true and sound faith and rest upon him? But not only for others, but also for me. Christ's death 
is my salvation. Or this is absent, where we have that, not that persuasion in our souls. If we think we can still go on living without Christ, if we have no use for his death on the cross, if we are yet in our sins, we are not to come to the Lord's Supper. Notice this in the, in the third mark there. Not only their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon him, but also of their repentance, love, and new obedience. Indeed, this is implied from the whole scope of the passage, where their lack of love for the brethren, shown in their abuse of the Lord's Supper, was that which demonstrated that they were not to partake until they repented of that sin. Even in the Old Testament, this duty of self-examination was the corrective, the corrective when sin is found in our lives that is unaddressed, un, um, uncrucified in our lives. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 40, let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. Would it not be a blessed thing, congregation, if the Lord would use this as his means of addressing sin in your life? There may be aspects of your life where you've tolerated sin. You've tolerated the temptations to ensnare you in things which are displeasing to the Lord. There is disquiet in your soul, for you know that you have not pleased God, that you are not walking in his ways. And yet there is this confusion, this muddle, so that we, like many of the Lord's saints at different times, we have not the strength to overcome and to be free from such sin. Oh, who will deliver me from this body of death? We cry. And so it is that this week, as you examine yourself, may the Lord expose for you these sins and the great remedy of Christ's salvation to overcome, that you would overcome by the blood and sacrifice of that same Christ pictured in the Lord's Supper. I think of the Lord's own words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother have aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. What is the scope here? Well, the idea here is in the Old Covenant, before they were to bring their sacrifices, suppose the Lord would expose for you that you have sinned against a brother. You yourself are guilty of a sin against a brother by the standard of the law of God. Should you just go ahead and participate in that worship ordinance. No, the Lord says, just leave that right on the altar and go there and be reconciled. That is the Lord's way. How much more if you have sinned against the Lord? If there is a controversy between you and God, now is the time to deal with it. Deal with it in the power of Christ. Dear brother, dear sister, do not allow sin to stay within your life. It is the enemy of your soul, the enemy of your peace, the enemy of your Lord. The Lord would not have you to come to the Lord's Supper where there is unaddressed sin. No, indeed, repent of that sin. Repent, be done with it. 
Say, by the Lord's grace, I will not have sin reign over me. By the grace of Christ, I will turn away from such things. And in this way, my praise and worship will be acceptable unto God when I offer it with a sincere heart of love, repentance, and new obedience. Well, thus far we've traced out what it is that we are examining the criteria of this examination, but let us speak of the finding, the finding. What is entailed in these words that are before us? It says, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Well, what is implied here is that having examined yourself, you would make a conclusion, that you would arrive at a determination, at a finding, and you be able to say, yes, I am worthy to come to the table of the Lord. Not in yourself, dear Christian, but in Christ you indeed are worthy. What is it our catechism says so well? For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ and that the remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death and who also honestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy. What a blessed thing. Where the Lord, by his grace, by the standard of his word, would make clear to you that you are a child of God. It's the whole tenor of the gospel, isn't it? To lead you from weak, trembling faith into assured faith. This is what the Lord desires to do, to make you not only saved, but to know that you are saved. In the first part of our catechism, question 80, the Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have a full pardon of all sin, by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself has once accomplished on the cross. This is it. Where Christ has shed his blood, Christian, you may come with boldness. Where you have examined yourself and found the marks of one who is truly in Christ, you may come, and you may come with gladness and joy. Of course, we may come to an opposite finding, may we not? If you would be one who would say there is no regard, no discerning of the Lord's body in this ordinance, if there is no faith in going out unto the Lord Jesus, if there is no true repentance, obedience, and love, then you must not partake. But dear Christian, if you find these things to be so, don't just be content with that. Don't just say, well, I'm not worthy, so I'm just going to stay away. No, God forbid God forbid that you should just be content to be in that state. No. Here is a week the Lord has given to you to become worthy, to flee unto Christ, to an urgency to find yourself to be in Christ and to attain unto a true state of grace by the gospel. That is... Not impossible, even through the self-examination, the one here is unconverted, could yet find themselves dealing honestly with the Lord for the first time and then come with rejoicing this coming Lord's day unto his supper. But suppose it is sort of a mixed result. It's a mixed result. You find in yourself you know, signs of the one, yes, one 
who is worthily partaking of the supper, but also signs of much weakness, infirmity, doubt, fears, temptation, and sin. How is it with you? Suppose it would even be the case with you, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I am saved. I'm not sure if I'm in Christ. I'm a mystery unto myself. Oh, sorry condition, a sad and a woeful thing to be caught between these two, unpersuaded of your own state of grace. And yet we fear that many are in this place. Listen to what the larger catechism says. May one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation come to the Lord's Supper. If you're not sure, what place have you here? Should you stay away? Should you come? If you're not sure, well, listen to how it answers. One who doubts of his being in Christ or his due preparation to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper may have true interest in Christ, though he be not yet assured of thereof. So what is it saying? It's saying, even where, even where you're not assured that you are a Christian, you may yet be a Christian. Saving faith and the assurance of that faith are distinct in many Christians. And so we cannot come to a hasty conclusion. Just because you have not assurance doesn't mean necessarily that you should stay away. Listen as it goes on. And in God's account hath it, if he be duly affected with the apprehension of the want of it and the unfeignedly desires it to be, to be found in Christ and depart from iniquity. So it's not someone who says, I don't really care if I'm converted. I don't really care if I'm assured or not. Those people are not what it's talking about. But those who really want to be assured of their salvation and they want they want to depart from sin. In which cases, because promises are made and this sacrament is appointed for the relief even of the weak and doubting Christians, he is to bewail his unbelief and labor to have his doubts resolved. Don't be content with that. You must pray, you must bewail, you must mourn, and you must plead for the Lord through the self-examination to make it clear to you. But what if, what if there's still not a full persuasion and assurance of your state of grace? Well, then it goes on. And so doing, he may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper, that he may be further strengthened. Oh, you see, Christian, the Lord's Supper is for the weak believer. It is for the strengthening of faith. As our catechism says so well, that their faith may be more and more strengthened. This is the purpose of it. If you have fled unto Christ, if you sincerely desire to be saved, if you desire to be free from sin, and even these are sufficient grounds to come to the Lord's Supper, provided that they are in sincerity. And so... We have not only the ordinance here, but also the right examination that makes worthy receivers of it. That they indeed would be those who would subject themselves to the duty. They would understand the criteria and they would arrive at a proper finding. In conclusion, let me read from Psalm 139, uh, verses 23 to 24. 
Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen.